0: When first beginning to study the Holocaust, the government organized, funded, and directed slaughter of six million Jews and one million other religious minorities and political opponents as part of the Nazi's final solution, young and old almost always ask the same question, the question that has confounded scholars and philosophers, rabbis and ministers for the last 75 years. How could this have happened? How could millions of people in plain sight with full knowledge, approval, and help of local and national governments be rounded up, shipped on international railroads to concentration and death camps throughout Europe, and murdered hundreds and thousands at a time through mechanized killing? There are many answers, and there are many questions that are still to be answered. But one thing we know is this, the rise of the Nazis and the Holocaust they inflicted could not have happened without the collapse of the rule of law. The German Constitution had a Bill of Rights very similar to ours. People were to be treated equally, they had the right to own property, their homes were invaluable, they were entitled to due process, and had the freedom of speech and expression. But as Professor Baker reminded us yesterday of Justice Scalia's words, quote, Every tin horn dictator in the world today, every president for life has a Bill of Rights. That's not what makes us free. What has made us free is our Constitution. The genius of the American constitutional system is the dispersal of power. Once power is centralized in one person and one part of government, a Bill of Rights is just words on paper. The Holocaust had many causes. But when Hitler took over all levers of the German government and was granted emergency powers to do what he wanted, once the judges looked the other way too and became complicit in Nazi aggression and murder, the rights so eloquently laid out in the German constitution were no more meaningless than words on paper. Our speaker this morning, Irving Roth, knows this all too well. He is the director of the Holocaust Resource Center at Temple Judea in Manasset, New York, and an adjunct professor at the University of Maine. Mr. Roth is a recognized speaker on antisemitism and the Holocaust and is a frequent lecturer at colleges and universities in the United States, Canada, and Europe. Mr. Roth developed and initiated the Adopt a Survivor program, which matches Holocaust survivors with students and teachers nationally and internationally so that that students can hear and see firsthand the horrors that man is capable of committing on man and to fulfill the promise that this generation and all future ones will never forget. For his work on the Adopt a Survivor program, Mr. Roth received the Spirit of Anne Frank Outstanding Citizen Award from the Anne Frank Center. Mr. Roth is an author. He edited and coordinated the publishing of Adopt a Survivor, An Antidote to Holocaust Amnesia. And he and his son, Rabbi Dr. Edward S. Roth, co-authored and published Bondi's Brother, which will be on sale after his remarks today, and published a Holocaust Survivor Guide for social studies and language arts teachers that encompasses a curriculum on the Holocaust that is taught to all grades throughout the country. Finally, Mr. Roth is a Holocaust survivor one of only 100,000 that are still with us. He survived the horrors of Auschwitz and the death march to Buchenwald. This week, 75 years ago, the death camps at Auschwitz were liberated by the Allies. I cannot think of a more fitting commemoration of this 75th anniversary of liberation at the conference dedicated to the rule of law than to hear Mr. Roth speak. Mr. Irving Roth.
1: standing in front of this very important group of judges, attorneys, prosecutors, I guess you might say that I'm going to give testimony this morning. I'm gonna testify to murder of individual people, by individual people, by human beings like us. because I was there. I began my life in a wonderful place called Czechoslovakia, a country that was going to be the America of Europe. Equality, opportunity, everything you might think of, the best of America will be brought to Europe in 1918. So that's where I'm born in 1929. By 1935, I live in a small city of close to 7,000 people. I began school, a city that was primarily Catholic. However, almost one-third of the population was Jewish, living in peace and harmony. After all, I started school in a public school like every other child. And I might confess to you, I actually liked school. But there's a reason for that. My first day at school, I looked around the class and the most gorgeous girl that I've ever (laughs) laid eyes on was in my class. So you can understand why I liked school. It was not cursive writing. (laughs) And so my friends, I begin school, I live in a house with my parents, my older brother, my grandparents. Within itself was wonderful because very early in life I realized that grandparents are so much easier to manipulate than parents. (laughs) In this wonderful city, that has a soccer stadium, that has tennis courts and has a beach in the, air in the summertime, an ice skating ring in the wintertime, stores a prosperous city in the 1930s. The world is a beautiful place for Irving Roth with love and understanding and freedom and security. But in 1936, there was a test, a test by a government to see what the world will do. The test was a very simple one. It was the Olympics, where the best athletes of the world compete, provided they're not Jewish. No Jewish athletes was supposed, was allowed to participate in the Olympics of 1936 because they took place in Berlin and its environment in Germany. No one boycotted the Olympics. It was okay. The first test, the world failed totally and completely, giving perfectly reasonable permission for the persecution of a group. But it didn't stop there. More laws were passed in Germany against the Jewish people. Their businesses were taken away. They could not go into parks. By 1935 and 36, the Jewish students were thrown out of school. The next major test, 1938, August of 1938, Germany declares that it's going to take a piece of Czechoslovakia, the country I live in. And if it, the world stops them, World War II will begin, and so appeasement by the powers, test number two. The Jews want to leave. After all, there are half a million Jews in a country of 65 million and they are persecuted so they wanna leave, but no country will take them. In fact, there's a conference in a place called Avion, France. You know, that's the place you have the very expensive water Only one country, the Dominican Republic, was going to take some, a few thousand Jews. The rest of the world couldn't. After all, America was overcrowded. It already had 120 million people living here. Not a single Jew extra could come in. Today we have 350 million, somehow we still have space. (laughs) Another test. By 1939, the country I live in no longer exists because Germany decides it's gonna take over part of Czechoslovakia, namely what is known as Sudetenland, which really is the western and southern part of Czechoslovakia. Today it's called the Czech Republic. The eastern part is taken over by Hungary. Where I live is a new country called Slovakia. Independent, of course, because Slovakia has a powerful Nazi party called the Hlinka party. And suddenly things change. Suddenly, I can no longer be outside at night because I'm a Jew, I have to wear a yellow star to be identified as a Jew. Mind you, the whole town is 6,500 people. Everybody knows everybody, but I have to be identified with the yellow star, those people. Very soon, I'm thrown out of school because I'm a Jew. Very soon attorneys who are Jewish can no longer practice law. Judges are thrown out of their jobs because they're Jews. None of you would have jobs, if you're Jewish. And so the persecution continues. The world knows about it because it's in the newspapers. 1938 has another symbol where the world fails again. November 9th to November 10th. That evening, over a thousand synagogues are set on fire while the, while the fire department looks on. 30,000 Jews are arrested because they're Jews. Hundreds are murdered. The stores are looted. Did the world stop doing business with Germany as a result of this? No. Did Ford Motor Company stop producing panzer tanks for the German Army? No. Business as usual. The stamp of approval is okay, says the world, by doing nothing you're doing. Germany wants more, they want a piece of Poland, but of course Poland has an army, not exactly 20th century army, their cannon are still pulled by horses, as compared with the mechanized army of Germany. And so, one day before my 10th birthday, September 1, 1939, World War II begins. People are at war. Germany is expanding. By 1941, my friends, Germany has expanded from the English Channel to the Soviet Union from Norway to Greece. And it looks like they will continue and the persecution of Jews every place they go continues. The Jews of Poland are already in ghettos dying of hunger and disease. In Slovakia, Jews have no businesses. My father had a business, a lumber business. He produced railroad ties by the tens of thousands, but he no longer can do that because He is a Jew. And so my father thinks of this brilliant idea. He says to himself, how are we going to live? Why not ask one of our wonderful Christian friends? His name was Albert. Why don't we ask him, let him take over the business as a friend? I'll continue running, it, said my father. Yes, we'll give him some money for using his name. Albert being a friend rescues my father's business. He's a rescuer, but three months go by and one day he walks into my father's office and says, Joe, how is business? Great, says my father. I'm glad to hear that because I think, as you can see, the sign on the business is my name. Albert Melesnik, not Joe Roth. As is the stationery and as such, I will continue having you as the manager. But understand, the business is mine. Not just the law, but transformation of people. This gentle, sweet man, who goes to church and believes in the Ten Commandments. He thinks nothing of throwing my father out, essentially, as the owner and taking the money and let my father work for him. But in June of 1941, Germany and its allies, Hungary and Slovakia, attacked the Soviet Union. Deep into the Soviet Union goes the German army. And this time they simply don't just persecute Jews. They murder them. Special units are organized. You would think that people who go around getting human beings out of their homes into the forest and machine gun them would be some psychopaths. Ordinary men, my friends, from every aspect of life, from doctors to lawyers, from farmers to pharmacists, all involved on a daily basis in the murder of individual human beings with machine guns, not by pushing a button a thousand miles away. Total transformation of society. My friends, not only is it murder permissible, it's patriotism. They're doing it for the greater glory of the Third Reich. That and with a full knowledge of the allied countries because in August of 1941 while the world looks at the war and the German and the Hungarian and the Slovak armies are pushing into the Soviet Union, they're 80 miles from Moscow. They're murdering Jews and every single night they report the number of Jews that were murdered. And that is monitored. At 10 Downing Street and 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Reaction of the world. Nothing. The failure of the human race. But the rate of murder is too slow. And so since there are maybe nine million Jews in Europe and all they've done is murdered in six months a half a million Jews, it's gonna to take too long. And so they convene a conference on the 20th of January and the brain trust of Germany is sitting together, lawyers and doctors, chemists, and physicists, military personnel, given the single task of developing a plan, how the Europe will become free of Jews. And this brain trust stay, sits there for a whole hour and a half and they come up with the idea, the way to get rid of the Jews is simply build death camps, bring the Jews there, and Europe will be rid of every single Jew. It took all of 90 minutes. Obviously, it was the brain trust of Germany. And so by the summer of 1942, six death camps are operational. Slovakia being a wonderful fascist country, once it's Jews gone, and so in the middle of the night, of the 20 some odd hundred Jews living in my town, Close to 2,000 are picked up that night, on a Friday night, stuffed into the synagogue. Day and later, they're in cattle cars, and they're gone. My friends, my relatives, gone. Where to? Khmelno Auschwitz, Maidanek, camp. And thus begins the liquidation of the Jews of Europe with a full knowledge of the whole world. You can find all the details in the New York Times, not on page one, of course. And so the world continues and the war continues and the Jews are being slaughtered. My family is there for a while, my grandparents are arrested, we get them out, and we know we must do something, we must disappear. And so we do. What do we do? We leave the country called Slovakia into one place in Europe that still has lots of Jews, namely Hungary. And so we get there. It's 1943, it's the beginning of 1944, and I'm sure you recognize the fact that by the beginning of 1944, the American army has been fully engaged. The American Air Force has been bombing the cities. The Soviet army is pushing back. There are still 437,000 Jews living in Hungary, including Irving Roth, my parents, my grandparents, my brother. But in the spring of 1944, Hungary too decides it's time to get rid of Jews. And so my friends, in 53 days 437,000 Jews of Hungary are picked up from their homes through a ghetto for a few days, arrive in Auschwitz, I among them, in this May of 1944. The transport has over 4,000 people 24 hours later Three hundred of us are still alive. My grandfather, my grandmother, my aunt, my ten-year-old cousin are gone. Where to? They're murdered. In gas chambers, their bodies burned. So all it's left is ashes. I survive what is known as the selection at a ramp. I'm 14 and a half years old. I'm draining swamps and plowing the fields of Auschwitz on a diet of some black liquid in the morning, some soup at noon, and a piece of bread at night. Scientifically calculated that the body can exist for at least six months on that kind of a diet. After six months, seven months, you're gone. But to make sure that as the process continues of you losing your ability to work, you don't absorb 300 calories, there are selections. And so my friends, many die even there. Into this place called Auschwitz, 1.2 million people are brought there, 1.1 million Jews are murdered in a period of two and a half years. By 1945, January, there are 60,000 left of the 1.2 million. They marched on a death march, me included. I wound up in Buchenwald, in a concentration camp. The details of the concentration camp you know of, and those of you who are interested in my details, you can get a copy of my memoir and read it. But fortunately, the war's coming to an end. My brother is taken away one day. I never, never saw him again. The eleventh of April of nineteen forty-five, the American army enters Buchenwald and finds almost twenty thousand emaciated bodies, hardly breathing, moving around, trying to remain alive. I among them. And so, my friends, the war is over. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are still alive. They can't go any place. There is no place for the Jews. They've lost their citizenship. They have no papers. They have no money. They have no profession. But the gates of the world are not open. They are DP camps, same camps that they were. I suppose the the food is much better. It is not until 1967 that the United Nations decides to create a Jewish state. Finally, after 2000 years of exile and persecution, the Jewish people now who are stuck in the middle of Europe with no place to go. Nobody wants them. Comments in my town. My God, the Nazis did such a lousy job. Look at that number of Jews that are returning, and they want back their businesses, they want back their homes. Also the Jews have no place. Finally, 1947, the UN declares, and by 1948, May, a Jewish state is born. The problem of the Jews (laughs) will be solved. Except for a small detail, my friends, that five nations attacked this new fledgling country, trying to destroy it. Miraculously, those same Jews who were in concentration camps and death camps, starving now, few years later, are trying to defend themselves from five armies, well organized. Somehow they managed to survive. But my friends, peace has not been given to the Jewish people. It is now 2019, and there are millions of people, many countries whose singular objective is the destruction of the Jewish people again. Iran is parading weapons through the streets of Tehran destination Tel Aviv. What is the world doing today? Nothing. Europe is doing business as usual. In fact, they want to increase the amount of business they do with Iran. For a vague promise of not openly building nuclear weapons. But continue harassment, continue the destruction of the Jewish people, not just by weapons, by words. They came up with propaganda, which is nothing more than a repackaging of the anti-Jewish propaganda, which we have a euphemism. We call it anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, anti-Israel. It's all the same, my friends, is the destruction of the Jewish people. This is where we are today. Are we gonna stand by and see as the Jewish people a century later are going to be destroyed again? Some would like to do that. My dear friends, I spend a lot of time going to colleges and universities and speaking on this subject. There are professors at universities in the United States who are not only suggesting but propagating ideas how to destroy the Jewish state. Divestment, sanctions. Go to colleges and universities, hundreds of them, They have parades. They set up walls where they say the Jews are destroying. And then we have the UN, which is today simply an organization that passes laws and resolutions against the Jewish state. Just about three weeks ago, my friends, the UN met and talked about human rights in the one country that was given lauded, wonderful marks for their human rights by nations standing in front of rostrums and speaking of the great human rights strides that are being made in Iran. The only country that's being accused of the crimes against humanity is Israel. The one single democracy in the Middle East. This absurd organization. This is where we are today. And so I ask you as judges and lawyers and prosecutors, I ask you to evaluate where we are today. Evaluate if we should do business with countries like Iran. If we should send money to organizations and countries and peoples who pay people to slay Jews. You decide. I ask you to do that as lawyers, as judges, as human beings. Thank you very much.